0: Welcome to the Trust Your Voice podcast. My name is Sylvie Leger and as a civically engaged entrepreneur, the co-founder of the Posse Circle and a mom, I've noticed that too often we underestimate our leadership potential and we forget that we can be a catalyst. I believe that no matter where you are in life, it is meaningful conversations like the one we will have today that ignite new ways to think about our purpose. You can be a spark for others. You just need to trust your voice, even if it's a little shaky. So let's start the show. So welcome to another episode of Trust Your Voice. I'm your host Sylvie Legère and today we're diving into a topic that's resonating with many of us and that is what are the pillars of a good life? And I've to say it's really hard to ignore the fact that our society is evolving and aging is part of that evolution. Life expectancy has increased by almost a decade since the 50s to 73 years old for men and 79 for women. And what that means is that in 2040, well, almost a quarter of our population will be over 65. So our perspective on the aging is shifting. And what does it mean for our individual families, communities when people are living longer? I think it brings different challenges. This conversation came about because the Policy Circle published a comprehensive brief on aging in the 21st century. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And also it's available at thepolicycircle.org. You can use the brief, anyone can use this brief to host a forum or conversation in your workplace or in your neighborhood. So Today's podcast is part of a series on this topic, and whether you're starting to consider what aging means for you, or you're knee-deep in navigating the complexities of this stage of life with family members, perhaps, or you're in your 20s and you feel immortal, but you want to help the most vulnerable in your community, well, my hope is that this podcast will help you determine how you want to engage on this topic. So my guests today are Derek Greifels, who is the CEO of the State of Financial Officers Organization, Verona Lee, who is the CEO of Near Technology, and Sheila Brown, is a senior executive at Medtronic. So you're welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Appreciate being here.
0: Thank you. So I'm going to kick things off a little bit because when we think about aging, a lot of times we think about health, diet, the environment, Fitness comes to mind. And I think that those behaviors are really only possible where people are standing very solidly on three key pillars, and that is financial readiness and stability, the ability to navigate the technology of today, and then living and being engaged in a really supportive community. So Derek, I'd love to start with you because you come at this issue of aging from a financial point of view one around education and also one of financial management of our nest eggs on which the funds that people need to live. So would love to hear your lens and your perspective on this.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Sylvie. First of all, appreciate the opportunity to be here today with you. I am the CEO of the State Financial Officers Foundation and represent 35 state officials, uh, state treasurers, state auditors from 28 states across the country who many of them act as their chief financial officer of their state, their chief financial education officer of their state. And so we do look at it from a a little bit of a different lens. We see a lot of the issues that we're experiencing at the federal and state level from a financial perspective as really kind of an underlying issue of a lack of education through the generations when it comes to financial education. One of the projects that our organization has fostered and and grown over the last several years is is a project called Smart Women, Smart Money Magazine. Our state officials saw that several organizations have great data out about this, but the largest transference of wealth in American history is happening right now from men in America to women. And it's partly because of some of the things that you've already said. Women live longer on average, a lot of, uh, of, of women are inheriting the life insurance policies of their deceased spouses and different uh, factors in considering being passed down to the next generation. And so we knew that if we really wanted to make an impact on Americans' lives, and let's face it, I'm married to a very awesome, strong woman, and a lot of women are the decision makers of the household in terms of financial decisions, in terms of consumers, and what they like to buy and not buy. And usually in our house, my wife, I let her decide what, hey, what we do. Sometimes she has to nudge my chin a certain direction to get me to pay attention. But we knew that being able to cater financial education to women would be a very powerful instrument. We've reached over 50,000 women over the last several years. And we've heard just fantastic stories where we've been able to give them the tools that they need To wherever they are in their journey, whether it's fresh out of college, maybe they're a single parent with multiple part-time jobs, maybe they've been really successful and now they're looking at ways to invest or start a company. We've offered tools to help them do that.
0: Yeah. So the other piece, you know, I think financial education, I'd like to add a component with financial literacy. It's a big issue. And I know like right now, financial literacy or financial education is not part of the curriculum in high school, which is really the place or at different points in life. So it's, it is a public education issue that it's good to hear that some states are are tackling, but it, it's not every everywhere. So there's a component around public education around that. And then also there's a lot that the private sector and civil society is doing to inform people on how to manage their finances. And I think the, the other piece then is the readiness. It's like the funds that you need to lead your life. And maybe it'd be great if you talked about that because people rely on pensions, on saving education is the piece of it right where you start saving so you could lead a long life and be able to care for yourself. But also people are relying on pensions and sometimes that's out of their control, the way those funds are managed. I'd love for you to touch a little bit on that.
1: That's right. Well, there are about 21 million Americans in the country that are relying on a pension fund in some way, shape or form. And I was really happy to see in your brief, by the way, the information, the map from the tax foundation that shows all of the different state pension funds and some of those that are really grossly underfunded. And when I say that, what that means is that the legislatures in those states haven't met their annual obligations to contribute enough money in those funds to keep them 100% funded, that if everybody showed up for their retirement or their pension fund at the same time, they wouldn't have enough money to meet those obligations. I actually have the opportunity of sitting on a, on a state pension board now, and we manage about $25 billion and have about 350,000 people in our state that are relying on those pension funds. So we take those investments very seriously. You know, The duty as a fiduciary to make sure that those funds are invested in a way that is uh, entrusting that those retirees will have access to those dollars when they need them is something that we take very seriously and very important. And so we, out of our state officials that are part of our organization, 26 of our state treasurers actually sit on their state pension boards in some way, shape, or form. And so uh, we monitor those uh, underfundings. We monitor the way that those assets are being managed. Um, We monitor the proxy voting that happens uh, on behalf of those funds during shareholder season with publicly traded companies. And all of that adds up to make a decision whether someone has enough money to retire at the age of 65 or if they have to wait till they're 66 because there's not quite enough money in in their account the way they want it to be for when they do go to retire.
0: So we talk about... The financial readiness. And I think it was interesting preparing for this podcast where I looked at the services that Farona's company near technology provides and, and how do we educate people on technology, not only to use FaceTime and Zoom and, and their phone, people's phone, but, but just kind of being able to use technology to protect, to manage, to grow your asset is really critical. And I think just even as we are evolving as a society and relying on technology and portals to access all kinds of services, it's critical that we continue to be lifelong learners of and adopters of new technology. And that's why I invited Farona to come and talk about the, her startup and our focus on educating retirees on new technology. So Farona, I'd love to for you to, to explain a little bit more what you're seeing and and what was the impetus for starting your company?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me here, Sylvie, and uh, to meet with Derek and Sheila as well. So the initial impetus of building the company was inspired by my parents. They recently retired in 2020. And what I noticed right away is that after they retire, they reach out to me a lot more to ask questions related to technology. And so we started to look into, okay, how about we provide tech support for older adults? And we're also going at it with not a lot of education as well. My background was in engineering, so it has nothing to do with senior care or anything related to that at all. My co-founder is a consultant. uh, consultant. Uh, And so we are going about it as like, we're just going to give tech support to individuals. But what we have come to notice from the trend that we're seeing is that it's not just about giving support, but it's really empowering individuals with the confidence and skills to really continue living their life in in many ways because so this is what happens what we are seeing is that when someone retires they typically take about two to five years to take a break see their family go on vacation and stuff like that and also take that time to really evaluate what it is that they wanted to do for really the next 20 to 30 years of their life and so during that two to five years of let's just call it a break for right now. They don't necessarily use computers as much as they did before when they were working full-time. And because of that, what happens is they simply lack practice. And two, two years especially doesn't sound like a lot of time, but we're living in a world where technological advances go on so fast that within that two years, a lot of things can change. And so for the ones that are fortunate enough to either find what it is they wanted to do or find a, a job that they wanted to do after retirement, when they go back to doing all of those activities, they're confronted by the reality of like, oh, I, I need to catch up with technology now. It has moved and changed so fast, and so we're noticing that the tech support is is not really about the technology itself, but it's re- very much intertwined into a lot of aspects of their life. Working is work. Finding fulfillment is the biggest one. Connecting with families, the second one, and to your previous point, accessing bank accounts and hospital portals and you know simple things like that. Everything has something to do with technology, and so that's a trend that we're seeing. And so we're the problem that we're trying to solve is that how do we then introduce some level of practice when people are not necessarily working in a nine to five office job anymore because. We take it for granted, I feel like, for the ones that are still working in an office work. that We interact with the computer for 40 hours a week at minimum. And so these are the best way to keep up, really, with the technology changes. If you use Zoom all the time like we do, they change the buttons, they change the layouts. And this happens on a continual, you know, it happens continuously. And it's only if you interact with the tools all the time that you Notice these changes, and so when you don't, how do you keep up with these? And so that's what we're trying to solve with with Near.
0: Yeah, I think that's like a, a really interesting perspective because just even the bank portals change, and it becomes quickly pretty challenging to say, okay, how do I accept a Zelle transfer, or how do I make a transfer? It's hard to catch up. So I love this idea of just you have to kind of practice and stay up to date on relevant technology for functioning in our uh, society. You mentioned, I think the other big pieces, people are victim, elderly people are direct victim of fraud in a big way. And I think that's an area of focus, right? Also in terms of helping people navigate when they are victim of fraud, but also how to prevent it.
2: That's right. Uh, what we're noticing is that when we uh, started to give the you know coaching to individuals, the relationship is more similar to a personal trainer at a gym, so uh, a lot of people would prefer to work with the same person and have a le- continuous learning about the same topic, or you know, it's almost like private tutor, right And so using that same analogy, when someone gets scammed or have a what we call the close call, that is when they get injured and get motivated to exercise and pay for personal trainers. And so that's why we're now focusing on scam events because that is when the pain points become top of mind. Otherwise for a lot of individuals, especially if they don't work with computers anymore, the motivation also kind of goes down a little bit. They don't feel the need anymore to use the newest bells and whistles when it comes to computer. And so because of that they don't okay I don't feel like I need to catch up anymore, but then when something like scam happens then the motivation kicks in um, and it's a high gear. So that's why we're focusing on that.
0: I think like earlier, you mentioned that technology, embracing technology is really key for people to stay connected with their community, their family and friends, events that are happening. And uh, Sheila, I'd love to turn it to you because you are knee deep and taking care of your family and, and you work also in the field of health. What is your perspective on the role of community and and family to uh, support people as they advance in age?
3: Yeah, so I have worked in the healthcare industry for over 20 years, and I spent majority of my career in pharmaceutical sales and currently in medical device sales. So I've dealt with a lot of elderly patients. Currently, I work with interventional cardiologists with um, coronary artery disease, as well as hypertension. And I recently just found myself knee-deep with my parents. And now my dad just died in, or transitioned in November of last year. He was 97 years old. However, he was pretty healthy up until that point, very active. And so we really didn't deal with healthcare as much. Um, and I know that's an unusual, extremely unusual. My parents are, are, are very outside of the norm, but... He did have end-stage kidney disease. Shortly after being diagnosed with that, he transitioned. And now my mom is 96 years old. And shortly after his transitioning, she fell and broke her hip. Up until that point, again, no medication, pretty healthy for her age. But now we're dealing with issues that we had never dealt with before. So getting her into rehab or kind of a nursing home, once the insurance was exhausted from that, to come out of pocket, it was $400 a day, which we could not afford. And so what we found is that, hear about it a lot now I'm living it, it's that middle class. We're not rich enough to afford that, and we we are not poor enough to get on Medicaid. We actually, because of my mom's retirement or her social security, she did not qualify for Medicaid. So we've exhausted savings and life insurance and all of that. And in fact, let me back up a little bit because they did give us an option for her to stay in this facility, which she did not want to stay there anyway, but for her to stay in that facility, it's either $400 a day or they would pull strings to get her on Medicaid, but she would lose her home, her life insurance, any type of pension, any savings, everything social security they she pretty much would have been destitute so we made the the option of bringing her home and we have just exhausted all financial means that we can do and right now we're in a, a point of trying to find how do we pay for getting her healthcare at home so that's some of the the challenges we face and so when you mention community i think that's a really great topic because we've actually leaned on our community, meaning family, friends, neighbors, anyone that can provide any information that could help us in taking care of our mom. Um, still in the process of doing that, but that is so very important. I also want to make a comment. Um, I thought Derek brought up some really good points about pension and funding. And one thing that I would highly suggest is of course, your 401k, your your pension, retirement, and all of that, but long-term care, making sure with that insurance and and when you're paying into that, that you're checking into long-term care. So if my mom had long-term care, then we would have someone to come in and take care of her. Fortunately, my parents, well, fortunately, because I'm very proud of them, that they were entrepreneurs. A lot of that was not offered to them. And at their age, they didn't know much about it. So I'm in the process of learning all of those things, making sure and telling my friends, even at my age, get long-term care. You never know if you're going to break a leg or something's going to happen, you know, that you may need it. But it is so crucial for elderly parents that may need health care down the road or in-home health care that they have those those things in place.
0: Thank you for, for sharing, you know, that what you're going through with your, with your family. And I think like, you know, as Derek, as we were talking about that component of financial literacy, and that is a component that we, a lot of times it's limit financial literacy is limited to budgeting. It's, opening a bank account, having a check account, mortgage. And then what you mentioned, right? People are not aware of life insurance, of long-term care insurance. And even when you join a new office, and I remember being right out of college, starting work and you get the talk about, well, do you want long-term, short-term disability insurance, et cetera? And you don't even know what it is or what it means. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and sadly your your experience on this. I'd love to, and this is a great transition because you bring up how you are not, your family is not qualifying from some of the government aid in terms of, of aging support. And I'd love for us to kind of shift our focus about the role of government and community and individual families on this topic, you know, in the U.S. and, and it's interesting in the brief. There are sections exactly on the section and the, the role of the federal government, state, and then also local. And uh, I was surprised to discover that actually there's many layers of government that dedicates a lot of resources to support the aging population, right? There's a Senate Special Committee on Aging that has oversight on the administration on aging within the DHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services. AOA, this administration on aging has over a budget of over $2 billion and they create a network of aging services that is available through the states. There's elder care locators at the state level. There's a series there at the local level. There's even area agencies on aging that lead local efforts and offer service like health programs, transportation, nutrition, managed senior centers. So there's a lot of services. And it sounds like, you know, those, I think, Sheila, from what you were saying, that you were starting to explore and looking at those services. What has been your avenues? Have you heard of all these services, perhaps, that are available in, in Illinois? So my
3: mom actually lives in Detroit, some on the road back and forth quite often. We did find the Detroit area for aging. It's D-A-A-A, so I'm missing one A here, but um, they did help a lot. We did get um, money for food. There is a program that will help with taxes and other programs that we're exploring, but there are a lot of programs, nursing, things like that. The only program that we're missing that is is crucial for my mom, who has um, Blue Cross Blue Shield and Medicare, is in-home healthcare. So it appears that majority of these programs don't cover that portion, which is really what we're in desperate need for. When we spoke with DAAA, they gave us as much as two hours a week, which is just a small dip in the bucket. They have, you know, with with me being an advocate, they have had the, the opportunity of exploring it again to see if those things can change. But I think that's the key thing is having an advocate. If my mother did not have an advocate or someone that could stand up and fight for her or to even explore all of these different programs, I wish there was just one place where like you could leave the hospital and they just give you all of this information in one nice Pack it. (laughs)
0: It'll be great. Right. That is always a challenge with government where all the services are siloed and, uh, you know, difficult to find and, and access. So, I mean, I think as we look at, you know, avenues of engaging and exploring, I think for our listeners, one idea is to just see this in-home care, what is the availability and what are perhaps the budget allocation in a state or in the city towards that? Because especially as people are living longer and from a cost-effectiveness perspective, you want to keep people in their home. It's, it's more cost-effective than having them in a in a facility. So I think that is something to explore and perhaps to interact with our representative on this topic in terms of allocations. You know, Derek, I'd love to turn it back to you, you know, in terms of the role of state treasurers and investment managers who manage pension funds, but also even the state treasurers from that perspective, how do they authorize or allocate, or perhaps initiate, and I know this comes from the agencies, but allocate funds to manage an aging population in, in a state or in a community. Love to hear your uh, your view on this.
1: That's a great question. And, and, and the hard part is, as you have probably experienced firsthand when you're dealing with 50 different state governments, they're all a little bit different. In fact, we have a saying in our organization, if you've seen one state treasurer's office, you've seen one state treasurer's office. Because frankly, it, it is it's very different operationally from state to state to state. And so that makes it difficult to kind of collect all of that in one place and be able to talk about that. I will say that I, I think that for us when we think about aging populations and investing and and being making sure that those funds are ready for the individual, you know, we want to make sure that we are laser focused on bringing the best returns on the investment period and i think forces like um esg investing and some of those things that we've seen become kind of trendy in the investing space over the last few years have really kind of detracted in some cases unfortunately from bringing good returns and so that's something that we're kind of on the forefront of and really kind of sounding a little bit of an alarm We created a website called OurMoneyOurValues.com, and that's really aimed at the general public to help them understand how ESG investing could perhaps be used in their state and how it's not always the best investment. And sometimes it, frankly, is just shortchanging the the retiree at the end of the day. There's been several uh, pensions that have heavily divested of different things for political sake. And we just don't think that's appropriate for the financial space. So that's something that we're really focused on. And our state officials are are really kind of standing up to that movement, not because they're anti the environment or, or anti other issues that are being pulled under that umbrella, but because they simply believe that, especially when it comes to state tax dollars and state pension funds that they have to be invested in a way that simply brings the best return on the investment.
0: But there's also, this is also applicable, right, to the private sector where there's companies that offer pension funds, right? So that's also, it's not the scope of what you are doing, but it's also raising the awareness of, well, if your pension fund is with a, a large company, then it might be worth looking at or asking questions about how that money is
1: invested. Absolutely. that And that's a little harder from on the private sector side unless you're a shareholder unless you're a shareholder that is actively investing in one of those publicly traded companies and you have a voice in that in that matter during shareholder voting season in the spring you know when a, a publicly traded company says we are going to make sure that all of our activities all of our investments are moving towards this particular issue or this particular ESG Focused activity at the end of the day, you can see where shareholders lose. Right? I mean, we've we've all seen the Bud Light controversy over the last few months. Bud Light has lost billions of dollars. And if you're not an investor, not a shareholder, you think you know it's Bud Light. Who cares? You know, it's not that big of a deal. If you're a shareholder for Anheuser Busch Corporation, you've got a serious situation where you've lost millions of dollars on your investment because of the actions that Bud Light did thinking about you know politics. And I would say that whether it's something that's leaning conservative or something that's leaning more progressive, they, at the end of the day, lost track of their duty to their shareholders to make money for their shareholders. And so so that's something that we're really involved with. We have a lot of folks going on cable news and writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and others talking about the importance of publicly traded companies doing their job, of banks doing their job as banks, of asset managers bringing the best returns, and really trying to keep all of those folks out of the political arena, both conservative and progressive politics.
0: And also, if we continue that conversation, the spirit of growing and keeping a nest egg, you know, according to a report by Bloomberg, scammers financially exploit as many as 5 million older adult Americans every year, and it results in losses of over $30 billion. There's a role, like Farona was talking about, with the service that her company provides. But Farona, what to, to protect people? But uh, Farona, I'm wondering, what are you seeing in terms of just this intersection of the public and private activities to protect people from scams and fraud.
2: This might be a non-very optimistic view or comment right now, but I'm quite surprised by how little support there is out there at this very moment to handle those cases. We recently actually did just a couple of weeks of customer discovery, talking to individuals who were recently scammed and actually lost have financial loss related to those events. The first piece of that is a lot of them don't have anywhere to go to, to handle the emotional distress. In addition to the actual financial loss that they're experiencing for the ones that are fortunate enough to have family members nearby, they have, they have something to rely on. But in most cases, especially for the ones that are living by themselves, they really have nowhere to go. There isn't, Organizing body, private or public, that provides this support. And so, second of all, in this is probably interesting to share. In a lot of cases with these with frauds, and if you go to even uh, some of the big banks' websites where they discuss frauds and, and scams, they will say that in most cases they are not able to recuperate those financial loss for many reasons. One of the big ones is because. Different organizations will report slightly different number. FBI and and, and FTC, I think, of something along, uh, something similar, where they say ninety percent of scams are due to user error, which is to say a human error. In which case, the victim actually authorized whatever purchase, whatever check issued during those moments because they were tricked into doing so. And so, when these are on paper authorized transactions. The banks cannot return the financial loss that they're uh, that the victims are experiencing. Evidently, after talking to these uh, individuals that recently experienced these, they just have to kind of deal with it. I'm hoping that this would be for whoever is listening to the podcast to start thinking about this and understand the importance of making sure that they're safe, because it's a real issue. And I'm hoping that there is going to be a solution from the government as well when it comes to handling these losses, because I think this is going back to something that we have discussed in various points. The information is also pretty dispersed too, right? And so when they have nowhere to go, even if they Google, first of all, they don't always know what to Google because in order to Google, you have to know what to ask. And then second, there's so much information. It's almost like a firehose of information. Like FTC says this, you can report FTC, then you can maybe report to your local police department. In most cases, they can't really do anything about it either. And so there's this, a combination of the amount of information. It's not that it's not there. It's just not structured in a way that is very user-friendly. And at the end of the day, there isn't any tangible support for the emotional distress they're experiencing. And in most cases, they can't also get their money back when they actually lose money. And I'm, I'm truly hoping that there's going to be support from both the private and public organizations
1: as well. Verona, you bring up great points. One thing that uh, screamed to mind is, as the listeners out there deal with fraud, a lot of times what we do is we send folks to their state's attorneys general's offices. Many of them have consumer protection and fraud divisions. And it's free for a consumer in a state government to call their attorney general. A lot of people don't realize that that division's there though. They don't do a lot of publicity and advertising, but a lot of times they can get legal help, legal advice. They can get support on whether a certain scam that's going around the state is legitimate or not. They may have already received reports about it. A lot of times there are a lot of people that just simply call to report A fraudulent email or call, and they kind of, a lot of state attorneys generals will collect that data so that they know that when another consumer or another citizen calls, they can kind of see quickly, yeah, this is a scam. You don't want to respond to this. But even if somebody that has been captured by one of those fraudulent calls or activities, a lot of times the state consumer protection division at at the attorneys general's office can help even pursue legal action on behalf of that citizen if it's something that is merited.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, what is happening in the state? Because it's true, that's where kind of the first line of reporting. And I think this is where, you know, that Senate Special Committee on Aging in Congress, they are looking at fraud. It's one area that they're looking at in terms of defining what would be national type legislation that would help protect victims of fraud. So I think, you know, thanks for, you know, directing people to those resources to help in this. And I'd love to kind of close things off in our last round. And Sheila, I'd love to turn it to you in terms of call to action, you know, like how, as we are looking at these three pillars, which I think are these first three pillars for having a good life as we are on on this life journey that is very long, you know, what would be your advice and how can people engage in their community or prepare for aging themselves or their family members? Sheila, I'd love for you to uh, share your thoughts.
3: I would say definitely prepare. You know, that's one thing that um, we did not do. And I kind of regret that. Um, I think earlier we talked about community. I think also, you know, finding people and finding these resources early um, will be very helpful. I also think that there, I, I spoke with someone recently, and there are people that will actually walk you through this process. Unfortunately, it does come with a sometimes a high price tag, but they can actually do a lot of the resource, research for you. But even from a personal standpoint, I'm speaking from an elderly parent standpoint. From a personal standpoint, again, the long-term care is so important. Um, really sitting down with a financial planner and looking at your retirement plan, your four hundred and one k. Are you contributing enough? Even trying to anticipate, and I know sometimes it's difficult to anticipate what the future is going to look like. I've talked to financial planners, and they always talk about travel and. my lifestyle is going to be like, but in case I do get sick or I do need to go into some type of home or medication or things like that, is that put aside. So I think again, just making sure that you're doing research early because the earlier you do it, the more information you get and the more knowledgeable you are when that time comes.
0: Ferona, I'd love for you to share kind of a call to action to uh, listeners based on the space that you are in, in terms of adopting technology or how to help people in our communities or elderly in our lives to stay up to date.
2: Yeah, I would say that if you know of someone who is scammed or have a close call, uh, don't start with what do you do or what did you do? Uh, And putting the blame on the victim because their chances are they're in the middle of Stressful situation, chances are they probably won't remember anyway what happened exactly. And so just to be there for them is the first thing to do and focus on, okay, what do we do now that that happened, as opposed to understanding what what had already happened in the moment. And uh, I would like to also say this is probably a shameless plug for our company. If you see any suspicious emails, forward it to security at feelnear.com so funny to hear uh, what Derek mentioned about some of the attorney generals. Um, What we do is that we get all uh, submissions of suspicious emails from our community. We have about 500 people subscribed in Chicago. And by having these submissions, we know what scam is going around because it is actually quite seasonal sometimes. They also would change uh, oftentimes of, oh, okay, this week there's a lot of PayPal. Next week there's a lot of Amazon Prime. And so by crowdsourcing these suspicious emails, we are better informed of what is happening out there and then are able to, as a company, to then redistribute it back to the community. that, Hey, this week we're featuring the most popular scam of the week, Amazon Prime, trying to tell you that you don't have a correct address for your shipping or something like that. Uh, and so that's, those are the two call
0: to actions that I would like to, the
2: listeners to take home with.
0: Great. Thank you. And your uh, company, and we'll put the link in the show notes, is feelnear.com, right? And Derek, I'd love to for you to close us out on uh, what are your recommendations and of action for uh, citizens to interact with, uh, pay attention perhaps, their state treasurers, right? And uh, what's happening in their states on financial literacy. Love to hear what your thoughts are.
1: Well, first, I would encourage people to go to swsmmagazine.com. That's the Smart Women, Smart Money online magazine and read some of the stories. Uh, there's a great article uh, this week from Stacy Rhodes, one of our writers who talks about some of this issue um, in terms of where you should be from a financial savings and retirement perspective when you're in your, te- in your teens, in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s. And she's doing this as a part of a series. Um, I believe she'll be speaking at the upcoming uh, Policy Circle Conference in November. Um, It's a great piece on our website. You can click a button and sign up. We send an e-blast out every two weeks. And it's a free publication. So we don't get your information to sell to anybody. We're not making money on it. We're just providing it as a service to citizens. So I encourage people to sign up for that e-blast and then lastly i would say to on the on the pension front on the financial investing side go to ourmoneyourvalues.com there's a couple of really easy videos if you don't know what esg investing is it really explains it in simple language in layman's terms and and helps you understand how it's what its impact is on investors on retirements and i would encourage you you know I always tease, I ask this question when i'm when I'm doing a policy speech. you know how many seconds do you think gets spent at a public pension open comments period at the average state pension meeting? It's about five seconds because no one's there. And so usually every state pension fund at their public meeting has the opportunity for individuals to go and make a few public comments. And I would encourage every one of your viewers, you know, to take that up and to go ask the state pensions, how are you spending our money? How are you investing dollars? Are they being heavily invested in ESG-centric investments and potentially losing money and losing returns? Um, I would ask your financial advisors, do I have personal funds in companies that are known for being uh, the flag bearers for the ESG movement? Um, I, I don't want to have those in my, in my portfolio. Um, So those are some of the easy things that I think everybody can do.
0: Yeah, those are great. And, you know, again, I'll put this in the the show notes because I I think it's a great idea to actually look at what uh, your state and pension investment board is doing and participate in public period.
1: Well, I was just going to say, Sylvie, there is a great new website that just came out. Um, 1792 Exchange has a state pension fund breakdown by state. And if you click on the state, like I'm clicking on Alabama, and it will tell me that the board represents uh, is 15 members, who's on the board, who gets to appoint the positions to the board. Um, and so you can see really clearly how those roles that get appointed to those trustee positions that are managing these huge multi-billion dollar retirement funds, you can see exactly who they are and, and how they get appointed to those positions.
0: Right. And perhaps you can uh, raise your hand to try to get appointed to that uh, position. I also, you know, in conclusion, I also um, find that uh, Bard bard.google.com uh, or Bing, uh, if you look up boards and commissions around aging in your state or in your city, you can find a lot of information and, and ways that you could really be involved in this issue. And, you know, back to what Sheila was sharing about your community, you could really try to be an advocate for services that your community uh, needs by participating and uh, on these boards and and commission because that's where elected official needs to need to hear from us to be able to make the right decisions. So I want to thank you guys for joining us today. I think this was a really insightful conversation. And I hope it will bring people a different way of thinking about aging and how to engage and um, prepare for our long life. So thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for joining me, Sylvie Léger, on my Trust Your Voice podcast. I hope that this episode brought you a new way to think about your voice, how to trust yourself, and how to use your voice for good in your life and in your community. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. À bientôt.